and welcome to episode seven of the Loud and Clear podcast produced by Richards Lerma, multicultural ad agency in Dallas, Texas. We are a podcast for people who give a shit about advertising. But today we've actually been inspired by our guest who is all about inspiring others through leadership. So today we are a podcast that aims to redefine the world of advertising as we know it by finding out what is coming next. Uh, But before we dive into all that, I am one of your co-hosts today. My name is Emily Puig, Digital Strategist. And I am Francisco Cárdenas, Director of Digital Strategy at Richard Slerma. I'm here with Joel Villarini, who's the producer of Loud and Clear. Our special guest today uh, is here in Dallas, Texas. We're so excited. It's Michael Fanuel. Did I say that right? Uh, Fanuel. Fanuel. He recently published a super, super inspiring book about inspiration called Stop Making Sense. Michael, to give you a little bit of background, has played on the strategy role on the agency side, but has also led strategic thinking on the client side as chief creative officer. He's global. When it comes to leading, he does not discriminate by size. 40, he can do it. 40,000, bring it on. Two continents, and he has stretched his lending hand to brands across 45 countries. What time is tea time in China? I bet he knows. Accolades, yes. Cannes, one show, and most importantly, the Effies. Uh, he also sends the elevator down as he has taught at Miami Ad School, BCU Brand Center, and wrote for the Harvard Business Review. His latest, as I said, Stop Making Sense, a book about inspiration without bullshit. Straight up, transparent, a book that invites you to show up, stir up, and get delusional. Yeah, so as uh, Francisco just pointed out, there is uh, quite an impressive background on you. Uh, but we'd love to hear a little bit more, maybe that, that isn't covered just, you know, in a, in a quick sentence or two. Especially interested in your background in politics. That is something that I think um, a lot of advertisers might relate to. And then um, what, what that process was like from politics to advertising to going client side to now stop making sense and, and what you're doing now. Right. Well, it is fantastic to be here. Thank you guys for having me. Absolutely. I am completely inspired by your mission to reinvent advertising based on the passion of people who give a shit. That's awesome. Yeah. So thank you guys for having me. I'm the son of Italian immigrants, and we grew up outside of New York City, and it was a real by-the-bootstrap American dream experience. And through that period, I fell in love with two things. I fell in love with food and I fell in love with politics. And it had always been my dream to work in politics. Uh, Other kids would watch sports. I would watch Meet the Press and and, and nerdy news shows. And and so when I graduated college, I had the opportunity to work on uh, a couple campaigns and, and, and we won. And I got a chance to go to DC and work on Capitol Hill and wow. it was it was amazing. Caught it was the bug. trippy. Uh until it wasn't. It, it it became apparent so quickly, and I should have known this, but it became apparent so quickly when I was there that that, that political communications work by exploiting people's anxiety, mm-hmm. by making people afraid. So-and-so will cut your taxes. So-and-so will cut your health care. And uh, I remember being a, a young staffer in a congressional office, and more than half of the phone calls I'd answer were, were from, from old people terrified, crying, afraid. Yeah. They were vulnerable. And I just thought, I, I love politics, but politics is too important to be in 
infested with that kind of toxicity. Uh, where can I learn how to do better communications, more noble communications? And that led me to the world of advertising Woo! somehow. <laughs> the most, advertising. The most you chose advertising. <laughs> I know, but I grew up in, in, in you know, the, the, the heyday of Nike advertising, and Apple was just launching the Think Different campaign. Magical. And I, and, and I thought those wizards on Wall Street could teach me a thing or two about how to do communications that appeal to the best in people. That's well, amazing that you landed there. And I'm kind of thankful that I'm in the business and you landed there and now you have this book I'm thankful you're in the business. <laughs> um, well, another really interesting thing that we know you are really passionate about and has helped lead you to this topic of inspiration and inspiring others is you have a really unique history with music. I think uh, Eye of the Tiger is mentioned in your book. Uh, so there's obviously a really interesting story there with what that song does to inspire people. Uh, you also have a lovely story to do with Bono that I would love for you to tell us about. Yeah. I'd love to know more about that. I am. I actually know nothing about music, but I love it. That's all it takes. And <laughs> I loved it from the time I was a kid, and, and I, I listened to a lot of alternative British rock, like the Smiths and the Cure, and I felt like someone was understanding my adolescent pain. Mm -hmm. These people got me, and I, I, I felt it. I felt it deeply, and I loved it. Uh, but, but, but really, behind the book is the story of one night that was a big night for me. It was uh, my best friend. Jersey John's bachelor party and his favorite band is U2 who were playing in town and I hated U2 <laughs> I fucking hated Bono <laughs> I thought he was a loudmouth, a gas bag a, a political dilettante so I didn't want to go but I had to go it was my best friend's bachelor party and I went to the show with my arms crossed determined to hate it and I don't know if you've seen U2 live but it is four times me it's, i love it yeah right it's it's rock and roll yeah. church yeah and and halfway through the show i found myself standing with my arms reaching to the air i wanted to join amnesty international i wanted to go to africa and dig irrigation ditches and suckle malnourished children at my teeth i was so damn inspired yeah you go through motions and emotions for sure right you do anyway. you do and uh and i wanted to know how it happened you know, how did that guy... That is not like, every concert experience. Two and a half hour show. But it's a lot of concert yeah. experiences, right? I mean, th 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 think about some of your favorite concerts. You are, you, are, you are emotionally, you're mentally transported to a different place. Yep. You, you, you feel stronger and sexier and more happy and more confident or more sad and depressed and melancholy. I mean, that's the amazing thing about music. It, it moves us. And, and, and to your point, it, it moves us. Yes. <laughs> figuratively and literally and uh and i wanted to know how that happened and i wanted to know how i could do that for the brands i was working on at my ad agency gig so uh i have in the writing of this book gotten to know some neuroscientists and some musicians who've sort of explained it to me and uh it's interesting stuff i inspiration works through what's called our mirror neurons and they are the part of our brain that helps us learn by replicating what we witness. So like a, a baby sees her mother's mouth move and her mirror neurons are triggered and her mouth starts to move and she learns to speak. What scientists have learned in just the past few years is that mirror neurons don't just mirror behavior, they mirror emotions. 
So when you see somebody sad, you'll feel sad. When you see somebody like Steph Curry intense and locked into the moment, you will be on the edge of your seat. When you see your political candidate angry, you will feel angry. And, and that's the basic mechanism of how music works. Music is a transference of distilled, intense emotion that activates our mirror neurons. And, and what's very interesting about it is that, that, that music, certainly it works in, in a way that scientists explain as top-down, rational. Mm-hmm. Right there are lyrics and stories and characters, and you understand there's a boy named Sue, and this mm-hmm. is what happens to that boy <laughs> named Sue. But for the most part, music works the bottom up. It works on our limbic system, our reptilian system that's been evolved over over centuries, and uh, and it does so by replicating sounds that are deeply human sounds. So climaxes and songs where things get faster and louder have the same sonic properties as human screams. And that's interesting. It's a roller coaster effect. You're terrified, right? It, it, it's turning on your fear and your terror and your anxiety, but you know you're safe. You're just listening to a song. You're not being attacked in the woods by an axe murderer, so it's enjoyable. Other songs represent babies crying, so they make us sad or empathetic. Some represent lust and sex, and they give you a sense of swagger, and you feel you feel amorous. Mm-hmm. So, 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 I mean, at, at heart, the way that music works is deeply human. It's an expression of human emotions that makes other people feel those emotions. And darn it, if we could do it through music, we could do it through speech, we could do it through communications, we could do it with one another. We've just got to let ourselves go. We've got to let ourselves be as emotional in our day-to-day talking as the people in our songs are when, uh, when we're driving in our car and, uh, and tapping our feet. Yeah. yeah. From now on, every brief I give is going to actually be a rock concert. So I'm very, very on board with this. I love the idea of, of communicating that emotion so passionately, which comes most easily to people in, in music. But right. how does someone you know, take that passion and enthusiasm and fervor and, and transfer it to what often comes down to a one-page brief? How do, we, how do we distill that into something that is actionable in, in marketing for sure, but in most workplaces, I would say? Right. So it's funny. Scientists have also learned what breaks that magic mirroring of neurons, what breaks that intense moment. They learned it by doing a study with spectators watching their favorite sports. These guys at UCLA hooked up the brains of guys, for the most part, watching basketball teams, their basketball teams. And their brain looks a lot like an inspired brain, like a brain at at a rock concert. Mm Mm-hmm. But all of that magic disappears. All of that magic dissipates at the moment color commentary begins. (laughs) As soon as there's play-by-play analysis and thinking and arguing, the emotional intensity disappears. And it's not a balance. It is an on and off switch. The more you think, the more you reason, the more you logic, the more you rationalize, the less you feel. Zero sum. Now, that doesn't mean don't think and logic and rationalize. By all means, do all of that to figure out what your strategy is. But when it comes go time, when it comes time to move people, all of that thinking gets in the way. You will never logic or reason or bullet point or reason to believe or functional benefit your way to great marketing. So, so, so I would say as, as a strategist, what you've really got to do in a, in a brief, no matter what 
format that is, be it a piece of paper or a conversation, is distill the emotion that you want people to associate with that brand. Mm -hmm. Distill that emotion and then express it. You said every briefing's going to be a rock concert, maybe. Or maybe it'll be a country music yeah. hoedown. Or maybe it'll be a techno gig. Or maybe it'll be disco. Like, who knows what it is? You'll find the, the right synthesis of what the brand needs and what you believe. And you'll put it together and you'll make magic that inspires the creatives. And at, at the end, that's your job, right? Like, walk into that room and, and inspire people. And you wouldn't say marching orders, but kind of like get them moving towards something. I thought it was interesting, you know, when you talked about RTVs. And how would you move from that functional RTV to that emotional RTV where you really inspire, right? right. In your book, um, you talk about the story of, you, you reference Cleo, right? And you suggest to always start, or at least that's what I took from it, with an uppercut, <laughs> right? Yeah. Which is kind of like a shocking start to things, mm -hmm. right? And, and here in a little bit of our notes, we were thinking at the beginning of the presentation, kind of like coming in and what the fuck is this? Uh, stop making sense book about uh, as thinking of of a possible uppercut which now knowing you and kind of hearing you talk that wouldn't be much of an uppercut <laughs> uh, but uh, it definitely kind of invites people to give a shit can you tell us more about these muses and how they get this guy going with, with this inspiration yeah. and the stories they plug into him i'm so glad you asked about that it's one of the favorite things that i learned in the course of researching this book so so the muses first appear in Greek mythology thousands of years ago to a guy named Hesiod. And everybody knows Homer, right? But Hesiod's the cool guy. He's the guy who told us all the stories about the gods and the wars and the battles, right? Without Hesiod, there's no house cards. There's no desperate housewives. There's no Game of Thrones. He is the guy that set in motion all of these stories. But his very, very first story is about the night he was inspired, the night he met the muses. And he's, uh, he's out walking in the middle of the night with his sheep looking for food. And these nymphs who are half naked, who are dancing, who are singing, who are flitting in through the forest uh, approach him. And, and this conceivably could be a very exciting moment for him, but but it's not. <laughs> they circle. Sounds him. exciting. They circle yeah. him, right? And and they are um, they're not friendly. Cleo, uh, and this is an indirect translation from the Greek. Cleo leans in and says to him, "You piece of shit, you poor shepherd dude who doesn't even have to have his food and has to for." And it's like, whoa, whoa, that's an uppercut right. to his psyche. <laughs> right. And, and, and I think the, the, the point is they go on to explain that their superpower, so, 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 so the muses are the daughters of Zeus and the goddess of memory, Menomini, sorry, I butchered that pronunciation, <laughs> but the goddess of memory. And they explain that their superpower isn't actually inspiring people, right? People think the muses come and they inspire you, but, but, but they say that's not their superpower. Their superpower is that they help control what you remember and what you forget. What you remember and what you forget. They control your memory. And I guess what I've come to believe is that the heart of inspiring people is making them forget something. Making them forget their limitations. Right? That's why inspiration at heart is delusional. I, 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 I forgot that it was impossible 
to run a marathon in less than two hours. So I'm going to try it. I forgot it was impossible for a startup ad agency from Wichita, Kansas to pitch the greatest market. So I'm going to try it. As soon as we forget the stupid limitations that have been drilled into our head by small-minded realists is when we feel free to, to fly, to be giants. Peter Thiel writes a little bit about that, about the limitations that you hear around you and you put yourself into. I think it's amazing to kind of bring it back to sometimes ignorance could be an advantage for you, right? And, and not putting limitations to yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it goes to that notion you, you were talking about earlier, Francisco, about, about disorientation. When you go about your day, your meetings, your presentations, in exactly the same way that they happened yesterday and Bullet the day points. before yeah. and the day before, you don't signal a shift in the universe that something could happen. You don't invite possibility. So, so that's why it's important to start moments when you want to inspire a team or a group or people, or to start with, with something that, that kind of breaks the rules. And it can be very subtle sit in a different place, wear a different outfit, lower your voice, raise your voice, drop an F-bomb, make a J. It could be very, very simple. I mean, we see it in presentations all the time, Absolutely. right? So, so I remember when I was a client uh, at, at General Mills, General Mills. It, it almost didn't matter what an agency was presenting to us. They all presented in the very same way. They brought six people, they sat around the table, they introduced themselves one by one, they showed us their PowerPoint, where their offices are located, they gave us case studies, they had relevant lessons, and then they all said, well, it would be presumptuous for us to have an opinion about your business at this early stage, but we've done a little research. <laughs> you have the script down. <laughs> right? Because, because they've all done it. It's like someone's got to come into that and, uh, and break the rules and we know this we say this to each other all the time let's not do powerpoint let's do it differently let's but life intercedes it's too risky Mm. it's the last minute we we do the humdrum what if it doesn't work the humdrum it doesn't work most agencies lose most pitches yeah (laughs) and they and and we keep doing it the same right but when it comes to putting some sort of crazy idea on the table we're afraid Right. Uh, or we remember that at some point what we did worked and mm-hmm. we want to repeat it. Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm curious if thinking about, you know, reaching big, doing something different, breaking the rules. Is there an example of either a brand or an agency or an, an individual that you saw crush it by just kind of forgoing all the rules and, and paving their own way? I'd love to hear, you know, if you've ever seen this in action in a way that could potentially inspire others. Yeah, sure. So I am. Um... I was lucky to arrive at the agency that was working on Dozeckis at mm-hmm. the moment they were about to crack the most interesting man in the world. Awesome. And the brief from the client could not have been more clear. They wanted to be the second best-selling premium imported Mexican beer in America. The second best. The second best, right? Mm-hmm. Corona was going to be the first, and they were going to be the second. And Corona was about daytime and sunshine and chilling out. And all Dozeki's focus groups told them they were going to be about nighttime and adventure and being exotic. It was crystal clear, mathematical, strategic thinking. Mm-hmm. But but our team at the agency, led by a brilliant planner named Caroline, realized, wait a second, 
you don't get to choose who your competition is. Nobody walks into a bar and says, give me a Corona or the second option. They walk into a bar and they have dozens, hundreds of amazing choices. And through the course of a night, they're going to imbibe in many of them. Maybe it's a, it, 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 it's, a, it's a craft beer. Maybe it's a crappy beer. Maybe it's a cocktail. Maybe it's scotch at the end of the night. It's all good. <laughs> so what the agency said is, we need to shift the brief from being the number two premium imported best-selling beer in America to being the most interesting thing in a bar. More interesting than all the drinks, than all the people, than all the music, than all the conversation, than all the jokes, than all the... I mean, that is a delusional Absolutely. <laughs> but it's only that kind of a brief that gets you to the most interesting man in the world. That's put some interesting dude and some interesting beer out. Yeah. It, 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 it's the scaling of an ambition to delusional places that gets people excited. You, you know, one, one of my favorite political stories is Al Gore in 2000 said he wanted to reduce carbon emissions 20%. That's pretty darn ambitious, mm -hmm. but he lost. Barack Obama said he wanted to lower the tide of the ocean. That's absurd, but he won. And not because of that, but because he had a way of phrasing everything in epic terms. He made things significant, and that inspires people. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the idea, you know, how you said Obama, what he wanted to do, and the concept of ambition and get delusional, I'm very influenced by, you know, in the world of advertising by Burnett, right, as mm -hmm. I was growing up. And they have a, a little logo, which is the hand reaching for the stars. And the whole story behind it, I don't know if you know it, but the whole idea is if you reach for the stars, you might not reach them, but you will never get your hand full of dirt or mm -hmm. shit. The idea, I think you talked also at some point about David and Goliath, right? David chose, you know, the big guy and going for the big one. We at, at Richard Lerma have a, have a case that's kind of similar, and we were talking to one of our clients, um, Curie Dr. Pepper, last week. Avocados from Mexico, the whole idea of saying, hey, I'm going to go to the Super Bowl. I'm a I'm produce, right? Um, I have a place there, but I'm going to go against the big ones, the Bud Lights and all these big brands around it. And that has paid off really well. For the brand. And you hear Alvaro Luque speak, and, and you know that he's in a way following your advice. I don't know where he got the inspiration from, but kind of like going for the big wig. When he sits and speaks to us, he says, hey, we're going to go and triggers that, that, that kind of delusional aspect to it, which makes us reach further and kind of think further. Can you talk more a little bit about that first point uh, between your six skills that you have? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think behind the greatest marketing is the most ridiculous ambitions, mm -hmm. right? I mean, of, of course, of course, avocados in Mexico should go to the Super Bowl and play with the big boys, <laughs> right? I mean, what are they going to do? A reasonable GRP-based plan? Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, where will that get them? Absolutely. Where right. will that get them? But no, it's it, it's interesting. I mean, you could you could trace the unfolding of the Civil War according to Lincoln's changing ambitions and his scaling ambition, right? From, I just want to get a compromise everybody could deal with, mm -hmm. to, I want to just make sure we, we take slavery and just contain it in the South, to, I want to keep the Union together, to, I want to abolish slavery and fulfill the mission of this great country, that's when the tide of the war changed. Right, it's big. That's when people had something to fight for. 
And 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 I guess giving people something to fight for is is probably at the heart of delusionalizing, of supersizing your ambition. Mm-hmm. And and as you said, nobody nobody wants to be Goliath. That's just stomping on turds. It's not a good story. You want to be David, and and it's evolutionary as well, right? I mean, we are hardwired for empathy and for battle. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and when you combine those two things, you want to be on the side of, of the little person. Well, you talk about Patton, no? General Patton, and how right. he got the troops like pumped up, and yeah. he showed up in a way that nobody would expect. It. Right, right. He, he didn't get them pumped up by saying, you guys are amazing. He got them pumped up by saying, I don't know about you guys. Yeah. <laughs> right, by making the other side amazing, by making the other side extraordinary and incredible and insurmountable. And then you go, damn it, I want to scale that mountain. Yeah. So I think what's really obvious in just hearing you talk is the amount of research, both history and what people have done in the past, what brands have done in the past. You've also learned a lot about science and neuroscience, which is something that I think we like to say that we dabble in in advertising as a, as a larger industry. And we maybe don't uh, do our, our due diligence there or we don't actively seek out those experts when maybe we potentially could. What was your research process like for this book because because you pulled in from all across science marketing everywhere and I'm, I'm just really curious how you yeah. brought it all together that's a good question I was lucky to have a great agent who navigated me through the publishing process and I got my book deal and I was all stoked to sit down and write. I had a really thorough outline, like 20,000 words of an outline. That's actually what you sell to a publisher and they go, great, now go write the thing. Mm -hmm. And I sat down and I thought, this is a breeze. I follow my outline. Now it will pop 220 pages. (laughs) Malcolm Gladwell, done. (laughs) Oh no. I got to page 30. And I was out of content. Like my entire outline (laughs) took me to like page 30. (laughs) And I really, I think every single one of us could write an amazing 30 page book. (laughs) Page 31 was so hard. (laughs) And, and, And it was hard because I was out of ideas. I was out of content. I had nothing. And, and, and the only way that I was able to break through that was, uh, was by talking to other people. So I met Marco Iacoboni, who's this amazing neuroscientist at UCLA. And I, I, I met an amazing musician who's a psychologist. And I met amazing chefs like Gabrielle Hamilton. And I interviewed creative directors from some of the world's best brands. And I, I talked to my editor and the assistant editor and the managing editor. And I quickly realized that you that, that writing a book, at least a nonfiction book, maybe mm-hmm. it's different if you're writing a novel, but, but writing a nonfiction book is a team sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, and, and it and sort of, it reminded me of my days as a, as a planner, right? You, you could sit around and have brilliant ideas bouncing around your own head, and sometimes you even get away with them. You win the room, you win the pitch, you crack great work, but you know, we know. The greatest ideas are only inspired when you are in some sort of communion with real people, with real consumers. You're listening, you're understanding, you're empathizing. Other people make everything we produce better. And I've never felt that more than in the course of writing this book. What was the most unexpected thing that you learned that influenced the book in a way that if you hadn't encountered this person, if you hadn't had this this piece of insight, it would have completely changed the direction of of what you were doing. 
so so that guy Marco Iacoboni mm-hmm. was really instructive. I mean, he is on the cutting edge of research about what happens to our brain neurologically when it is inspired. He talks a lot about a passion of mine, which is tennis. And he says mm. the only way to really watch tennis is with the sound turned off. He's the guy who did that study I was telling you about right. before, that color mm. commentary Basketball. and play-by-play yeah. analysis ruins sports. His whole thing was you inspire people when you intensify the stimulus. You intensify the stimulus. You can't inspire people subtly. Uh, <laughs> and that was a big thought. That was a big thought. How do you do that in a way that is uh, nonetheless workable in the confines of normal business situations? Mm-hmm. Right? You wouldn't want Bono in every damn meeting. Right. <laughs> but, but how do you bring just enough Bono to the conference room? To make it exciting. Exactly. Yeah. And Federer, no? I had you're a super fan of Federer. I love Federer. I saw that guy in Shanghai one time play, and he was amazing. Like he's like a surgeon. It's a panther. Uh, yeah. My favorite essays. David Foster Wallace, the novelist, wrote a great essay in the New York Times called "Roger Federer as Religious Experience." And in a weird footnote in the middle of that essay, he talks about when thoughts become feelings. To somebody like Federer, practices so much that the mechanics become art. And I thought, what, what, what a great metaphor for what we want to do uh, to the people around us when we want to inspire them. How do we take the thinky, thinky, bullet point, rational, blah, 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 and turn it into pure mainlined feeling? Yeah, that's beautiful. I think if we're able to achieve that in what we do or, or even our hobbies, I mean, you're on the other side, right? Like you you would enjoy much more what you do. You talked earlier about, you know, also learning about the consumer. And at some point when we were reading your book, you know, I have this love-hate relationship with um, focus groups. And I think you talk, you touch a little bit into it. And our question is like, do focus groups really, our question was, do they fuck things up? Um, You know, I've heard many great advertising men talk about if great campaigns like, and I know cigarettes is not in fashion, but like the Marlboro man um, would have gone through a focus group. It would never make the see the light of day, right? Or or many other campaigns that, that, that we could think of. Yet now we rely so much on that feedback, which is kind of not 100% transparent because it's kind of there's influence from the other members. What are your thoughts on that? And to, to right. drive to inspiration, how does that kill or enhance inspiration? Right. When people so, are working. So, so as, as I said before, I um, I deeply believe in data and evidence and reason and logic. And when you look at the data on focus groups and market research, much of it conducted by the Institute for the Practitioners of Advertising and Les Binet and an amazing, an amazing group of people who looked at what makes marketing effective and what makes marketing good, they concluded the data, the facts concluded that uh, focus groups not only uh, got in the way of great marketing, mm-hmm. uh, they, they they decreased the effectiveness of great marketing. Do you think the gorilla that you mentioned on, on your book? Cadbury gorilla. The Cadbury gorilla, which I love. Yeah. I remember that campaign when it came out. We were right. all crazy about it. And right. Do you think it went through focus groups? I know it's an Argentinian creative who worked on it out of London. But Juan Cabral, right? Uh, Juan Cabral. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. What did, that guy had. That guy had a great few years, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. He also did Sony Balls. I yeah, believe. Sony Balls with the color just, balls falling. Just amazing. 
I mean, they're, they're, they're both examples of marketing that are purely emotional. They don't ask you to work your prefrontal cortex to think and analyze and assess and debate. That's the problem. As, as soon as we get people engaged rationally, um, objections occur. What ifs? Have you thought of it this mm. way? Let me give you another example. Second thoughts. Right. And, and, and why would marketers, at the moment they're trying to make a deep and valuable connection with their consumers, want to do anything that gets those consumers' intellectual hackles to rise? Right? You want to seduce. You want to charm. You want to connect. You want to move. You don't want to argue. Mm -hmm. You don't want to debate. Uh, and I think that is, so don't get me wrong, I, I think market research. It's a balance. My wife's a market researcher and brilliant at it. I think market research could certainly inspire great thinking and great ideas. But I, I think too much of the market research we do as an industry is meant to evaluate and judge as opposed to inspire. Justify almost. To justify. Right, to cover your ass. Mm -hmm. But look, mm -hmm. it, it worked well in focus groups. Oh, yeah. right? The numbers are here, right? Yeah. And that stuff's bad. So I tend to agree with you, I think. Yeah. I think on a similar note, you know, you started to talk about how would these big crazy ideas have ever made it through the focus group? Would the focus group have been used to to hold it back? And earlier before this this taping we were talking about, you know, what is the risk of of being the crazy one in the meeting who pitches the idea of the gorilla playing the drums? for a chocolate commercial. Like right. what is what is the risk of being too crazy? Is there a ceiling there? Is there no limit at all? And we should, when it comes time to, to be inspiring, there are no rules, there are no handcuffs. Especially when you come and bring that delusional, right. bigger than life right. goal. Do you we, lose credibility? We, we were talking, yeah. At what point, if you don't make it, do you lose credibility or you lose, uh, you know, is it a one-time shot kind of thing, right? If you didn't lower the tide of the sea, what happens next? I mean, you guys are such an esteemed, hollowed agency with a history of doing fantastic work. And I've been lucky to work at amazing places like JWT and Fallon that have also done great work. Almost every agency mm -hmm. you could point to, you could name, has done great work. Mm -hmm. And they haven't done great work. You, you know, as I said before, <laughs> most agencies will lose most of their pitches. These are the facts. Mm -hmm. So why not take a chance? You might alienate somebody. You might be laughed out of the room with your delusional idea, with your weird way of pitching. But you're likely to lose anyway. You know, J Jeff Kling, who, who was my creative partner at both Euro and, and Fallon, always reminded us that the, uh, the way we currently do things in the world of marketing hasn't cracked the code on great marketing. Great marketing is the exception to what our industry produces. Most of it is, is terrible. Not great, yeah. Right. <laughs> Most of it is right. terrible. Correct, yeah. So you might lose a client, you might lose a pitch, but you're going to lose clients and pitches anyway. And to what extent is that, in your book you mentioned authenticity as being one of the six skills for, for inspiring others. To what extent is that kind of rooted in being authentic to yourself and, and being authentic to maybe it's your brand or, or what does that role of authenticity play in um, in those big crazy ideas? Right. I mean, we all know how important authenticity is, right? In, in personal relationships, in marketing, 
if somebody sniffs a phony, they hightail it in the other direction. But telling people to be authentic in agencies, to be authentic, isn't very useful advice. And what does it mean, right? Right, yeah. right. what does it mean? What, what I found is, um, is a tip for doing so from Carl Jung, the, uh, the 19th century Viennese psychologist who studied with Freud. And Jung has this notion that each of us has got a shadow. It's our dark side. It's the things we're embarrassed about when we try to hide. Maybe we're too egotistical or too greedy or too lustful or too ambitious or too persnickety, whatever. <laughs> we all have things about our personality that, that we think suck and we try to hide them. But Jung's point is as soon as you do that, you really screw up your whole psyche. You become artificial. You're half a person. And how inspiring can half a person be? He, he says what you've got to do is embrace, love, throw your arms around the bits of you that might not be so great. And, and in so doing, you'll show up in a way that's more authentic and more magnetic. And I think it's a great lesson for ad agencies who normally come into client conference rooms saying, we are great. We are fantastic. Look at this awesomeness. Feel that amazingness. Ugh. There's no shadow. Yeah. I, I think as soon as agencies say, oh, here's what we struggle with, here's what it really feels like to work with us, here's when we get frustrated and annoyed, as, as, as soon as they are honest about their shadows, their shortcomings, I think they become so much more magnetic, so much more appealing. Beware of shiny, happy agencies. Yeah, they might not be true, right? Well, I mean, I think... You, you have a conference <laughs> soon to mm -hmm. give here at the Richards Group. I think we could go on and on. I don't know if you have any other question. I would love to continue. Um, I was going to say, Emily. I don't have another question that wouldn't take 15 minutes. So I think we'll, <laughs> I'm we'll, sorry. We'll, my we'll answers are so long. No. no it's no. been amazing. I think it's, it's, it's I've enjoyed so much doing this, this podcast, doing the research, kind of like, you know, the meetings uh, prior to this also were very interesting in the points of view of the team. You know, I told you by email, we're super thankful that you took the time to do this uh, for Loud and Clear. I think I would love to for us to stay in touch and see how applying these skills uh, changes in any way the, the way we do business and, and ourselves as, as people. I highly recommend are, this book. Are you kidding me? I, I spent two years of my life writing this book and you wanted to talk about it. I love you. <laughs> I'm awesome. so grateful for you. Like, thank you guys. We're happy to have you here. And if there is anywhere that um, our listeners can find you online, if they want to have you come and talk to them, yes. where should they look for you? Absolutely. Michael at talklikemusic.com is a good place to reach me. And you could buy my book you could buy where you buy books also when is it available for audiobook it will be available for audiobook in early november awesome i figure podcast people and audiobook people probably have some strong overlap there they do so, yeah <laughs> awesome awesome well thank you so much michael for being here with us today thank you listeners thank you. for joining us uh, if you are listening to this podcast you can of course find it wherever you're listening to it you can also find it on Spotify, on uh, Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts. Uh, and you can follow us on Twitter, at Richards Lerma, on Facebook, at Richards Lerma, and on Instagram, at Richards Lerma. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in today, and we hope to have you back real soon. Cheers. Cheers.